Good morning. It's a pleasure and it's a great honor for me to be able to get to preach this section of Mark. We've been in Mark for <clears throat> what seems to be a very long time and we're nearing the end now. And um, there's a lot of road to haul here, so I want to make sure we dive in right away. Special welcome if you are new here this morning. My name is Dave Lundberg. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Um, we're happy to have you here. Um, let's pray first before I dive in. Um, there's some pretty impactful scriptures to go over here this morning, so definitely want to ask for God's help. Holy Father, I uh, understand the weightiness of these couple chapters here in Mark, but Lord, it also reveals and shows that you use the most unlikely of people so that you get the glory in showing your power through your death, burial, and resurrection. God, I pray that you would be magnified this morning. What an amazing feat to beat death. And what not more amazing to defeat death on behalf of creatures like us who deserve death. Lord, your gospel is like honey to our lips, as David says. It's, it's sweet, it's precious, it's powerful. God, would you work in power in us this morning as we go over this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, it's Sunday, it's the Lord's Day, and here we all are attending church, gathered together. But why are you here why are we all here this morning? Some of you perhaps may feel you've come by force. <laughs> you've been drugged to church and you can't wait to get home and get back into those sweatpants. And I feel you there. Some of you maybe have been coming because you have questions. And you're hoping that by coming, you're going to get answers to some of these questions that you've had maybe your whole life. Well, we're glad you're here. Some of you may have no clue why you're here. You think you may be a Christian, you're not really sure, and you know that Christians are supposed to go to church, so you come, and you're here, but you're still unsure as to why you do all of these things, why go to church, and why every week. But many of you are here, praise God, because you want to be, right? You choose to be here. You make church a priority. And even that, it begs the question, well, why? Are you coming because you love the community? Nothing wrong with that. I mean, we have wonderful members here at GCF that are such a blessing to just be around. Wonderful members. Maybe you come because you love the worship. Right? We have talented brothers and sisters who do a fantastic job leading us in worship. We're so thankful for, for Mike and, and just the worship ministry here at GCF. Maybe you come because you love the preaching. Amen and amen. Surely you're not coming because you love the coffee. We know that. I love the coffee. So, Well, these are all valid reasons to faithfully want to attend a church, right? We want community. You know, worship can, can move us in ways that we've never been moved before. But the point that I'm getting at here is all these reasons would be completely pointless. They would mean nothing if not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So at the end of the day, it's the gospel that's driving you to be sitting in these chairs here this morning. The evangelion, as it's mentioned in scriptures, which is the good news concerning Christ's life, death, and resurrection that brings salvation unto us. So think about right now how many religious services are taking place. Or maybe how many religious services took place throughout this week. I mean, no doubt there are wonderful people who likewise can foster a welcoming environment, right? A loving community within our local Mormon churches here in Spokane. Or the Jewish synagogues. Or all the local postmodern churches that we have here. I mean, these are all places you could walk into right now and feel welcomed, loved, and accepted. No doubt that there's services happening right now with the most incredible worship experience you could ever imagine with the the most positive message that could refresh you and just make you feel rejuvenated as you head out for for the new week. But brothers and sisters, if these places lack the gospel, then they're powerless. They're pointless. If the music playing is not proclaiming the good news of what Jesus has done, then it's just music. Powerless. If the preaching is not audibly presenting and pointing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's just empty speech. And it too comes without power. And if you think this is extreme, imagine if we were only to look at Mark chapters 1 through 13. Let's say we just stopped at chapter 13, right? If all we focused on were the ways that Jesus helped the needy, how good of a teacher he was, how much love he poured out to all those around him, I would argue this too would all be pointless and powerless if chapters 14 through 16 were never taught or were neglected. And this is because the core, the center of the gospel message, the powerhouse is the fact that Christ really died, that he was really buried and that he really rose again. And these events have massive, massive implications. And they're the most important element that powers the Christian faith. Not an amazing worship experience, not even a community of nice people, and not even the most gifted speaker that could just move anybody with their words. So I can stand up here and boldly say this because Paul stresses this very point in 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and 15. Let's look at those, 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. So it's interesting here how Paul is elevating Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to the number one spot when it comes to priority and importance. Right? To the point that he even says that if one of them were not true. Right? We know Christianity hinges on the resurrection, but if Christ never died, then there is no resurrection. So if none of these happen or if one of them fails, then everything else that falls under the umbrella of Christianity would be pointless. So why there are so many amazing things about Jesus, what he taught, the things he did throughout his ministry, we must maintain this core gospel truth as first importance. And this is our main takeaway this morning, brothers and sisters, that the message we center our lives around is that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. The message we center our lives around is that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Now, if this seems like a no-brainer to you because you've been a Christian for a very long time, you've heard this over and over through multiple Easter services, let me challenge you a bit with a question. In fact, I think this is probably a good question for all of us to consider. So let's just all consider this. If you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then how are you responding to it? Not how did you respond to it 20 years ago. How are you responding to it today, daily? How is this truth impacting your life as a Christian today? Has this miracle of this awesome work of Jesus that's incredible, unknowingly maybe morphed into just a, a story that you become all too familiar with? Or does this message still have power? Is it still changing you today? We'd be wise to, to check ourselves in this area to ensure that the gospel message has not and will not grow cold in our hearts. That it's still driving and motivating everything that we do today. If you think, oh, I've heard this before. I just need to know more about God now. I need to know more about the Bible. I've heard the gospel. So what's the big deal? Well, that leads you to tap into other sources that have no power. The message that we center our lives around is that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. Now, since this message is of top priority, it has massive implications to the way we live our lives, right, as Christians. So we're going to look at two points from our text that are going to help to remind us why this message is so important and how it impacts our lives today. So let's jump to our first point. Jesus' burial is a message that he really died. Jesus' burial is a message that he really died. Now, this first point may seem a little strange, but it's very necessary when you start to realize how soon after Jesus ascended into heaven that people started to try to disprove the resurrection. The minute Christ resurrected from the dead, people started disproving that it actually happened. Why? Because it's unbelievable, right? They couldn't believe it. Think of poor Thomas, who sadly will forever be known as Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe the other disciples' report when they came back and said, we saw Jesus. He could not believe it. He would not believe until he could physically touch him. So while this point can seem simple, it's actually very complex, and it's a stumbling block for many. Maybe this is something you've stumbled with or wrestled with, and it's making you stumble. 
And look, this can be understandable because as humans, how do we perceive death? Right? What, is, what does death mean for us? It's the end. Death is it. Game over. Death is something we all consider to be the end of the road of our lifelong journey. So when a loved one passes away, we immediately start the grieving and mourning process. Why? Because we have no expectation of them ever coming back again. See, death has a 100% success rate, right? It will always win every single time. So to hear that someone came back from the dead naturally would draw immediate skepticism. It's unbelievable. So it shouldn't come as a surprise in that there are many skeptics out there since the very first day of the resurrection, even up until now. And let me tell you, there are some crazy theories out there that try to explain the resurrection away because many just can't believe it. The most common theory, Jesus never died. Jesus never fully died. Yeah, you, you got that right. In true princess bride form, Jesus was only mostly dead. He was only mostly dead. Other, otherwise known as comatose. He slipped into a coma. He was under all that stress of being crucified he slipped into a coma. He eventually came to, and therefore, there never, ever was really a resurrection. Well, Mark 15 comes in handy for this here, because sandwiched right in between, the story we know all too well of Christ's death and resurrection lies an easily overlooked and often underrated event, Jesus' burial. And it, look, naturally so. When we have the resurrection here on Easter to talk about, we're going to talk about the resurrection. We, we spend little time with the burial, and that's, that's fine. But there's a lot of significant details about Jesus' burial that, we can, that are rich. And in typical Mark fashion, they come at us quickly here. There's, there's all these details packed into only six verses. But when you consider all the other gospel accounts, it's pretty rich stuff. So let's set the table here and, and reconnect where we left off last week. Last week we read that Jesus went to the cross, he was crucified, and he breathed his final breath. You can imagine the drastic shift from all the chaos and the commotion of this event, right? I mean, think about all the people, the crowds who came and followed Jesus as he carried his cross. Some were screaming in anger. Some were probably fighting with each other. Some were crying. Some were wailing in great sorrow. Think about the commotion coming from the Roman guards, the Roman centurions, as they mocked Jesus and these criminals carrying the, these crosses, cursing at him, barking commands at him. And then imagine the cries and ag of agony and pain that are coming from Jesus and these other two criminals as they're under the worst form of Roman execution. No doubt they're, they're just taking this silently. Imagine the sounds that such tremendous amounts of pain and suffering could make. So you have people screaming, you have people yelling, you have people fighting, you have people cursing, you have people screaming in great pain. The scene of unbearably loud and just chaos lasting for hours. And then it just ends. Jesus breathes his final breath, as the scriptures tell us. 
this Jesus who became famous across all of Israel for performing miracles, for loving people, for claiming to be the Son of God, and yet is finished. He's dead. It's the end of the road for the lifelong journey of Jesus Christ. And this is what the culmination of all his life, work, and ministry has come down to. I mean, imagine how shocking this was. This had to send just a shocking dose of confusion and reality to his followers. All of Jesus was, everything that he had said, everything that he had done during his lifetime, everything he accomplished came down to an unjust, messed up trial that ended in Roman crucifixion. So the mood shifts and changes. The crowds slowly dissipate and they go home. Some go home just blown away at what they just saw. They're broken. And like a cat that's playing with a mouse that finally dies, these centurions fun, it's all over now because all these, these three criminals are dead. Their job's done. Remember that John tells us that the, the Jewish leaders asked the Roman centurions to speed up the deaths of these other two because the Sabbath was hours away. So remember they broke the legs of these other two individuals on the cross so they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe and they too died. So death encompasses the scene and what was recently an unbearably loud and chaotic scene has now shifted into this unbearably grim, dark and silent ghost town. Imagine what that looked like when everybody left and Jesus is still there. He's left lifeless, hanging on a cross. And this is confirmed by that soldier. Remember that soldier pierced his side with a spear to confirm that he was dead. And so he's there, dead, affixed to his cross. And we pick up in verse 42, Mark 15, 42, verses 43. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, though Jesus' story is now over as it seems because he's dead, praise God that God's plan isn't finished here because he always leaves a remnant, right? There's always a small flickering of hope that remains lit when darkness seems to win, here we're introduced to a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, an unlikely person to step in at a very unlikely time. And there's not much we know about this Joseph of Arimathea, but the scriptures tell us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Yes, the, the very same Sanhedrin I talked about a few weeks ago that condemned Jesus to death. So what does Joseph want with his body? Well, Luke 23 sheds some light on something very interesting that went down that night that Jesus was standing trial before the Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 50 through 51. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Interesting. So here we have this wealthy and prominent member of this prestigious Sanhedrin who has secretly been holding back his views regarding Jesus and now determines enough is enough. 
See, witnessing Jesus' death is what seems to finally break through these, these convictions that he's been harboring. And it leads him to a bold and very courageous response. Enough is enough. So he musters courage. He removes himself from the equation and humiliates himself by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. So why is this humiliating? Well, think about the implications and the cost of this decision by Joseph. See, helping, helping Jesus is essentially Joseph declaring allegiance to someone who had just been crucified for being considered a blasphemous, law-breaking lunatic. By helping Jesus, he is now identifying himself as a follower of Jesus. And make no mistakes, his counterparts in the Sanhedrin, they will hear about this. I guarantee you he can kiss the years of respect that he had gained from these counterparts goodbye as a result of this decision. So understand that this choice to associate with Jesus will greatly alter the respect that he accrued, most likely the friends that he had, and it could even put him at risk at becoming the next victim of the Sanhedrin's disapproval. Very costly decision. It's interesting how John 19 describes Joseph as a secret disciple out of fear of the Jews. A secret disciple. If someone were to write a book about your life that could look intently into your heart, would you be considered to be a secret disciple out of fear of fill in the blank? Perhaps a secret disciple out of fear of man, right? Because you've been harboring guilt from avoiding so many opportunities that you've had to share the gospel with your friends, family, and coworkers, but you didn't. Or maybe someone's approached you about your faith. They're pursuing you, asking you hard questions. And instead of courageously and boldly answering them with the gospel truths that you know and that you hold dear, you avoid them. Or you remain quiet out of fear of being seen as a devout follower of Christ. Maybe it's fear of what people will think of you. Maybe it's fear of persecution. You know, not getting that raise that you've been working years for. Maybe it's fear of losing a job or a really good friend. So we know that here in America, being religious is accepted. In fact, it's applauded. But it's only accepted and applauded so long you keep it to yourself. So long you remain open-minded and inclusive. And most importantly, it's applauded and accepted so long as you aren't one of those really serious Christians. You know, the ones that live by the Bible and judge others according to it. Well, I think it's safe to say that Jesus' death and burial that Joseph had experienced had a lasting impact on him. It was the catalyst that changed him, the event that woke him up to finally commit himself to Christ. Enough is enough. Oh, that this effect on Joseph would be true for us, church, that we would see Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and that would give us the courage that it takes to be a Christian in a world that is so hostile towards Christ. That our allegiance would be to Christ no matter what the cost. There's others out there. Praise God that Joseph wasn't the only one who humbled himself here. As John also tells us that Nicodemus 
the Pharisee, the prominent leader of the Jews and esteemed member of the Sanhedrin, he stepped up to the plate. And he was there with Joseph of Arimathea. So they get permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body and then they go on scene to recover his corpse. So let's continue to look here at our chapter. Uh, Let's look at verses 44 through 46. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So at this point, look, there should be no question as to whether or not Jesus is fully dead here, right? I mean, Scripture authenticates this over and over by describing things like Jesus breathing his final breath, Jesus being stabbed to confirm that he is dead, another centurion going to check to make sure he's dead, which who knows what that looked like. And then here we have these very descriptive words that describe Jesus as a corpse, a carcass, a lifeless, dead body. But what does seem to be false advertising here is how Mark describes this process of collecting Jesus' body, right? Joseph bought a linen shroud. He took Jesus down, wrapped him in it, put him in a tomb, and was home in time for dinner. Done. Like, time out. (laughs) Time out, Mark. Can we slow this down for a second? What is going on here? How terrible of a task was this? for these wealthy, prominent Sanhedrin leaders who are dressed in their holy garments trying to get Jesus down from the cross. Now look, I'm not trying to use gore here for a wow factor, but this is something we seriously need to consider. Here are these two esteemed Jewish leaders dressed in nice priestly garments trying to get a dead body off of a cross. I'm sure you're all thinking what I'm thinking right now. This means that they had to somehow remove those huge nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. And as you may know, they typically would bend the the back of the nails over on the other side to prevent them from slipping out. How in the world does this happen without causing even more damage to the body? I mean, can you imagine what this was like for them? And then once they get Jesus down, now they have to maneuver him multiple times to get him wrapped in this shroud and get him transported over to Joseph's tomb. And time was not on their side here. We have to put that into consideration. See, Jesus died on Friday around 3 p.m. We know that the Sabbath was on Saturday, but here's the kicker. The Sabbath technically started Friday evening. See, it was Jewish custom to consider a new day to start in the evening, not in the morning like we do today. So they literally had a few hours to get Jesus off the cross, have a proper Jewish burial, and and be put into a tomb. So given this time constraint and complexity of maneuvering a heavy corpse, it's unlikely that this was a no-contact type of errand, right? There's no way. I mean, you can imagine how bloody this whole scene must have been. Here's a body that was scourged, beaten, stabbed, and crucified. And here are these men in their nice garments trying to wrestle this lifeless body that's nailed to a cross, wrap them in a shroud. They must have been covered in Jesus' blood. The scriptures tell us that 
they gave him a proper Jewish burial. This involved washing the entire body clean, cleaning out the wounds, getting the shards of wood that are probably still in his skin. They had to have been covered in Jesus' blood. What a figurative picture this paints, though, right, of Jesus' blood covering the very clothes that these men found their identity in. The garments that made them sinfully and falsely religious are covered in Jesus' blood, and they're ruined. But now they don't care what happened to these garments that they once valued so highly because they see Jesus as better. See, their lives are forever changed by the very blood of Christ that they're soaked in because they see his worth as valuable. This is what they're placing their value in. So they devote their allegiance to Christ. So Jesus burials a message that he really died. And this is significant to us now because what this means is it means that our sins fully died along with him. And this is what hangs in the balance, you see. If you don't believe that Jesus fully died, he was comatose, well, then our sins never died with him. And that means that we would still stand today enslaved to these very sins. And some look at Jesus' crucifixion as a means of punishment, right? Well, he just needed to be punished. You know, death wasn't really the focus, punishment was. So whether or not Jesus died in the process, it's irrelevant. As long as he was just punished on behalf of us. Well, this completely negates what the Bible teaches. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. And this truth has been foundational all throughout redemptive history since the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. You remember, they sinned against the holy God. And they rightly deserved death. But instead, what does God do? He kills an animal. And he clothes them with the animal's skins. Yeah, they got kicked out of the garden. But they lived when they shouldn't, shouldn't have lived. They should have died. But they didn't because the animal died in their place. And then for centuries on, up until Christ's death, animals had to continue to die and shed their blood in place of man in order for sins to be get for, forgiven. So sin requires death. This certainly raises the stakes a little bit then when we consider our sin. Doesn't it? I hope it does. And think about this the next time you sin today, that what you just did now requires death. Every single one of your sins requires blood to be shed and a life to be taken. Church, if your temperature is starting to rise a little bit as you hear this, because there are sins that you know you're secretly keeping alive because you love them too much, Realize that what you're loving and what you're petting is the very thing that sent Jesus to the cross. It's the very thing that required Jesus' precious life. See the cross and put your sins to death. And so Christ died as the greatest sacrifice, once and for all, for every sin, since he was worth so much more than just an animal. He was the son of God, perfect spotless lamb. And without the sacrificial death then, we would still be in our sins. We would stand here today unforgiven, unredeemed. We wouldn't be saved, surely, and we wouldn't be loved by God. 
So brothers and sisters, we should rejoice in the beauty and power of this gospel message that sets us free, right? Christ tasted death so that we don't have to. He really died. Hebrews 2.9, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus dies and then is buried with the help of Joseph and Nicodemus, the mic drop of, of all proof texts, right? Because burials don't happen to people who are alive, right? Who are burials for? They're for the dead. And Jesus was buried. One commentator says it best. The significance of the present text is best appreciated when one stands beside an open grave. Jesus has been there too, not simply as a mourner, but as the corpse. Jesus' burial is a message that he really died and he took our sins along with him. Moving on to our second point, we see that Jesus' resurrection is a message that he really defeated death. Jesus' resurrection is a message that he really defeated death. Now, after spending nearly half this sermon defending the fact that Christ really died, I now get to sort of unravel it by highlighting the fact that he defeated death. The most pivotal event that powers Christianity. Of course, yet another highly debated topic. Lots of skeptics. And unlike these lesser-known, unlikely men who stepped in when things mattered the most regarding his death, well, God uses another unlikely group to prove the wisest of critics, the wisest of skeptics wrong. And in godlike fashion, he always gets the glory, right? He will not give his glory to another. So he uses what's considered to be foolish in the world, what's considered to be weak in the world, what's low and despised to shame the wise. So here he uses two women to be the first to witness and bring to light the biggest victory the world will ever see. All four Gospels make these women central as being eyewitnesses to not only the resurrection, but to all three of these events that make up the core of the Gospel message. They witnessed his death, Mark 15, 40. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and of Salome. They witnessed his burial, Mark 15, 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. And they witnessed the resurrection, Mark 16, 1 through 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might not go and anoint him. So they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day, one, early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, women were highly, highly undervalued culturally in ancient Jewish society. 
but even more so when it came to religion. They were thought to be gullible in religious matters. One historian says that they were thought to be prone to superstitious fantasy, and women were prone to excessive religious practices. It's kind of it's humorous to think of a Pharisee thinking that a woman is gullible of excessive religious practices. <laughs> All the while, their whole life as a Pharisee was built upon them. But nevertheless, if you really want the best shot at proving something, right, something that's going to be so highly debated, that's unbelievable, you would want a credible witness, a notable man like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. You would want those guys to be your eyewitnesses. But having women to be the key eyewitnesses to the most unbelievable event that makes or breaks Christianity is like playing the very worst card on purpose during a poker championship. It was so far-fetched, it was considered to be a joke. And the writers were the ones that were getting slammed for it. Why in the world would you write this in? You had the power to change it. You wrote these words, you could have wrote anything and people would believe it. This is foolish. So the only legitimate reason then for these gospel writers to emphasize the testimony of women is if it really happened, right? As if it were really true. And even the apostles who were close to these women, they didn't believe their testimony. Luke 24, 10 through 12 tells us, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So again, God uses unlikely means to carry out his mission. Why? Because he wants all the glory for himself. He we see throughout Scripture, he used the most crazy, unbelievable means during events. Things that we'll look at and be like, are you sure you want to do that? We just read about Gideon and his army in Sunday school this morning of narrowing down, which was tens of thousands of soldiers to 300. You sure about that, God? Wouldn't you want more soldiers to defeat these other people? No? We see this all throughout Scriptures. He does it for his glory. And see, this is intentional because what does it do about us? It removes us from the equation, right? It's about God. It's not about you and your power. And it helps to prevent us from ever thinking that we ever did anything worthy of being saved. See, the gospel is made, made possible only by the power of God and that's displayed here in the, the power of his death, burial, and resurrection, the only thing that we brought to the table is our sin. That's what we contributed. And so there's nothing left for us, church, but grace. It's the whole meaning of what grace is. We get to take part of this good news and we get all the benefits of everything that Christ did. Our contribution? Sin. So Jesus rose from the grave. He lives. His resurrection is a message that he really defeated death, and as a result, so can we. Death no longer 
has to be the end for us. This 100% success rate is going to start changing. So what does this mean for us this morning? Freedom and hope. Just as we learn that Christ's death frees us from our sin, his resurrection frees us from the grip of death. Because Jesus conquered the grave, we now get the guarantee of everlasting life that will be 100% pure, free from any sin. What does this even look like? Can you imagine? No more sin, no more pain, no more injustice, no more having to say goodbye, no more sickness and sorrow, and no more death. It's fascinating when you realize that there's death in our world today as a result of sin. Men were not originally created by God to die. We're supposed to live eternally. But everything changed when sin entered the world. John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. This is the message that we center our lives around, right? That Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that that saved us. This is the power that we still cling to today that is still working out our salvation. And this is the power that gives us hope when darkness and the woes of life seem to be winning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our everlasting, never-ending hope. So why in the world would we ever want to neglect this message? Why would you not want to come to church to hear this message? Why would you want to be part of a church where you don't hear this message? This is why we come to church. And we're reminded of it. And we can hear it over and over and over again. This is why we sing songs about it. Right? This is why we surround ourselves with a community that never wants to stop talking about it. Hope. I don't know about you, but... Sometimes this life just stinks, right? It's hard. Um, relational strife, sickness, pain, and then you get to hear and see evil every single day on the news. And what's worse than is I have to look in the mirror and look at my sin, right? And, and it's only by the grace of God that he doesn't say, Dave, here's all your sin. Here's, here's everything I have against you. Here's all your charges because I would collapse under that reality. But by his grace, he just reveals it slowly and slowly. But it's there. So why am I hopeful? Why can I wake up with joy? Well, the gospel. The gospel is what gives me hope. And it's the message that you need for hope. Because it's the only thing that forces us to pry our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances, and it fixes instead our eyes on Christ. Just like these eyewitnesses that we read about whose lives were changed as they encountered Christ, the gospel changes us. Right? We change when we go back to Calvary and we see Christ hanging there and suffering on that cross because we know that we're the very ones that put him there. Go back to Calvary and look. We change when we consider his burial and death that he had to be slaughtered and shed his blood because of our sin. And he had to do this so that our sins could die along with him. And we change when we go back to the tomb and we peek in and we see that it's empty. That he rose to new life so that we no longer have to fear death. Is this just a cute little Easter story or is this the truth? 
And if it's the truth, is it impacting the way you live your life today? We too get to live forever with Jesus Christ in sinless perfection. See, we need this hope. We need it today. We need it tomorrow. And every other day, we live in these sin-tainted bodies in a world that's riddled with sin. A broken, broken world. And make no mistake, we're still running our race, right? Christ's story is over. He, he's, he's accomplished everything. But we're still running our race, and we need to finish faithfully. As Paul exhorts Timothy while Paul's waiting to be executed. Finish the race. Mark 16, 7 through 8, leaves with an exhortation to these women. Go and tell. And I would say that this is an exhortation for us as well. Now that this has happened, now that I've defeated death and raised from the grave, go and tell. Verses 7 through 8. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Go and tell. Tell of this wonderful gospel message. This may be awkward. You may look foolish. Yeah, it may come at a high cost. But nothing can surpass the worth of knowing Christ. And though it looked grim there for a bit, there was a little turbulence there. Christ had died. His earthly life ends with a victorious defeat. He's won. And this changes anyone who repents of their sins and puts their trust, faith, and hope into Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, fam. Go and tell others about it. And keep one more thing in mind. Going and telling also means telling yourself. This is a message for you today. This is not your ticket punch message that got you into heaven and now you put it back in the drawer and you're good. Tell it to yourself every day. Let it fill you with courage as you eagerly await this new life that Christ has already prepared for you through the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's end with this beautiful commentary regarding this truth. Jesus is buried. Though at one level this seems like a mundane fact of the narrative, it is a crucial part of the gospel and the salvation that is ours by grace. Jesus was not simply mocked or insulted or wounded on our behalf. He was killed. Jesus underwent the death that is unavoidable for every one of us since Adam's fall. Though each of us must pass through this awful experience of death, Jesus' own death, with his subsequent resurrection, means that our death, while awful, is no longer a dead end. It's a new beginning. Death for the follower of Christ is an entrance ramp, not an exit. See, this entrance ramp that we're heading towards leads to eternal life, freed from all of our sin, and we get to live forever with Christ our Lord. And this is only possible because of his death, burial, and resurrection. So go and tell. Let's pray.